Hey, welcome back. So happy to have you here with me today. You know, June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, so I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to bring in a brain expert, someone who can give us some important insights on this complicated and mysterious organ that controls so much of our lives. But I don't just want to talk about the brain. I want to talk about our sense of smell too, right? I mean, smelling is in the brain, so there are obvious connections to be made. And importantly, there are things we can do to use our sense of smell for brain health. So let me introduce you to my guest today, Professor James Goodwin. Professor Goodwin is the Director of Science and Research Impact at the Brain Health Network in London. He was formerly the Chief Scientist at Age UK, Europe's largest charity for older people. And he's also a professor in the Physiology of Aging at Loughborough University and the University of Exeter Medical School, which are both in the UK. Dr. Goodwin has been a member of numerous expert bodies, including the United Nations Research Agenda for Aging, the United Nations Digital Health Group, and a UK ministerial advisory group on research. He also led user involvement of the European Union's Future Age Project and has given evidence on the science and social impact of aging to congressional hearings in Washington, D.C., and parliamentary select committees in Westminster. In March 2014, Dr. Goodwin was elected as a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. In 2015, he was appointed a board member of Optum Lab's Alzheimer's Disease Research Initiative in Boston, here in the U.S. And in 2016, he became a founding member of the Global Council for Brain Health, a joint venture with the AARP, which is the leading organization for people over 50, here in the U.S., more recently, he's also written a book called Supercharge Your Brain, How to Maintain a Healthy Brain Throughout Your Life, which is a great resource to help keep your brain healthy for a long and lucid life. Maybe you've come across Dr. Goodwin because he regularly appears on broadcast media also. So things like BBC News, Sky News, local radio in both Britain and here in the U.S., in fact, for us locals here in San Francisco, he gave a keynote address at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco, and he's also appeared on the NPR show Forum with Michael Krasny. Needless to say, with that kind of expertise, of course, I'm honored that he joined me here on Aromatic Life to have a conversation about the brain and brain health. We talked for over two hours because there was so much to say. We probably could have gone on longer. And because of that, I decided to split the conversation into two parts. In today's episode, we're going to focus on the evolutionary role of our brain and our sense of smell, how we came to appreciate, or rather underappreciate, this beautiful sense to help us survive and thrive. We also talk about how our sense of smell works differently to our other senses and how much research has improved our understanding of the brain and how we look at brain health. There's so many gems in this episode alone. You're going to love it. In part two, we'll get into the more practical side of things. We'll talk about the connection between our sense of smell and aging, and importantly, about the link between our sense of smell and dementia, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. In that episode, you'll get practical tips on things you can do in your everyday life to maintain and improve brain health, including using your sense of smell. Yay. But for now, let's get started with part one of the conversation. By the way, he insisted that I call him James, if you're wondering. Enjoy the episode. 
This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Gagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. So I want to welcome you to An Aromatic Life. James, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, Frauke, it's a pleasure. And in many ways, I'm new to olfaction, uh, notwithstanding the sense I've had since birth. But in a scientific point of view, uh, it's an exciting new area for me. And I came across it entirely by serendipity because in researching my chapter in my book about COVID in the brain, it became clear that essential oils had much evidence to recommend them for the treatments of long COVID, especially uh, one of the ingredients called carvacrol, which is um, a terpene uh, part, part of essential oils from uh, wild bergamot for one and curcumin, I think the other one is, but there are about four sources of carvacrol. And when I heard that, it dispelled this reticent idea I'd had that there's anything good to be said about aromatherapy. I know there is now though. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you were introduced to a few things. That's wonderful. So I'm I'm just really excited to have this conversation today. And it's because we're going to talk about the brain. And I just love learning about the brain. I think it's a fascinating subject. And you're an expert in this field. And you've written this wonderful book called Supercharge Your Brain, How to Maintain a Healthy Brain Throughout Your Life, which I encourage anybody who is fascinated by the brain to read. I'm going to have a link in the show notes so you can um, check it out. And what I think is wonderful is that you've done such a wonderful job of making it, you know, dare I say, readable because you bring in a lot of stories. You make it palatable. It's not a scientific book as such. Would you agree? Yes. Um, my view was that people love stories. We all love stories. Yeah. And some of the stories in the book are so unlikely. If you if you read how, how I write them, you begin to think to yourself, what has this got to do with uh, brain health? And then suddenly um, the veil is lifted and you think, oh my God, <laughs> how, you know, the Battle of Trafalgar between the British and the French in 1805, what would that have to do with, uh, with, with brain health? Well, buy the book and, and you'll find out. And, and Phineas Gage, a railroad foreman in Vermont in 1882 yes. who had um, a metal tamping rod blown through his brain right, and, and, survived, and, and survived it. So stories are one medium of actually um, selling the science, if you like. But also I'm very grateful to Jan Stein, my art curator of uh, Imaginate LLC in, uh, in Florida, who curated all the art in the book. And I believe that my book uh, published by um, Penguin is one of the few science books with any real art in it. So ah. that, that confluence of art and science, which actually was enunciated by Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci um, hundreds of years ago, 
is a vital part of understanding the, uh, uh, the world of science. And, uh, almost science is um, improved by art and art is informed by science. Very well said. I agree. I agree. So, and we are going to talk about the brain, but I brought you on here because, of course, this is an aromatic life. So we're all about olf olfaction. So I was giving you the challenge of, of really talking about how the brain works in relation to our sense of smell, the olfactory system. So I'm really excited to talk about that specifically. And yeah. because I tell everyone smelling is in the brain, right? Our nose is a vehicle and our mouth is a vehicle for taking in the odor molecules, but all the action really takes place in the brain. And that's what I think people need to understand is that there's, there's so much that in our olfactory system that's affected by the brain, that the brain affects, vice versa, you know, it's all integrated. So I'm really excited to, to have the conversation here um, about our sense of sure. smell and brain health. So, but I do want to start with a question that I ask all my guests. So if you don't mind, that's kind of a personal question, just your own reflection on this beautiful sense. So what would you say the sense of smell means to you personally? Well, I'll go back to my earlier comments about um, the arts and science. And my view of smell is uh, actually informed formed by both. I, I only have to quote the words of Percy Bysshe Shelley. Odors when sweet violets sicken, live within the sense they quicken. So even in those early days when Shelley was writing, his writings are odiferous. Yeah. And wasn't understood, but he refers to odors all the time because he knew the subjective experience of odors is so important to us and that it enlivened the mind. I'm a biologist and a physiologist. Biologist tells me why it's there. Okay. He tells me how it works. So this personal experience and this understanding of science means that smell to me is an indispensable factor in my quality of, uh, of life. It's a huge source of uh, pleasure. And not only pleasure, that's the positive side, it's also a negative side to smell as well. There's some smells we don't like and make us move away from them, toxins. Well, there are those paradoxes in uh, human life where you have to balance both of them. Sometimes you need pleasure, sometimes you need pain. Uh, it's getting that that is getting that balance but but for me smell can i imagine a world without smell smell just uh if i can use this colors my world more bright it's true it's so true yeah it's 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 a really wonderful sense but so let me ask you what do you think people misunderstand about this beautiful sense why is it actually really important well there's um a huge misconception amongst people generally that smell isn't as important as our eyesight or our hearing or our, our, our touch or anything else. Well, it, it, evolution didn't see it that way, but 19th century religious politics in France did. <laughs> uh, this uh, diminution, this lowering of uh, the value of, of smell, um, uh, was manifested in this fight between a neuroanatomist in France called Broca. There's an area in the brain called right. He found the speech center of the brain. Broca. He was at war with the church because the 
church said, you're teaching um, atheism and materialism. And he believed in his work and the evidence so much that he, he doubled down on that. And he exaggerated his findings. And he said that free will doesn't come from our soul. It comes from the cerebral hemispheres. And if I look at the, that part of the brain, it's enormous in humans and it squashed the olfactory bulb to nothing. So therefore smells not important. Wow. Rocker. And that was because he doubled down on this, uh, um, the, the, the teachings of the, the church and over-exaggerated or overstated his evidence. And that view continued. It, it continued into um, William Turner in 1890, who said that humans were osmatic, osnomatic. Osnomatic. Right? <laughs> in other words, smell is, of, is almost zero, zero importance. Uh, even into the 1920s, there was Professor Herrick, a British professor, who said that the olfactory bulbs don't do anything, they're vestigial. Wow. The humans, they're underneath the cerebral hemispheres and they look as though they've been flattened. In animals which are, which you smell a lot more than we do, the olfactory bulbs are at the front of the brain and, and they stand out a, a great deal more. But actually that's, um, that's only um, a, a part, part, of the, part of the picture. Um, Modern science still tends to diminish the importance of smell because they say the number of genes that we've got that code for the smelling receptors is only 390 and in a mouse it's uh, 1100. So that would tend us to think that genetics is, uh, um, may, may, is also played down the importance of, uh, of smell, but actually, it's, uh, in my view, um, not true, right? First of all, the absolute size, absolute size. Yeah. Uh, olfactory bulbs, hugely bigger than that in a mouse or cat or dog or any other animal that depends a lot on- uh, Interesting. The loss of smell. In some ways you could say their sight isn't as good as ours and therefore they rely upon smell much more. Our sight, human sight, is not as good as some avians, some birds, but. Uh, it's absolutely, it's, uh, it's very well developed in uh, humans. The size of the olfactory bulb is much bigger than in, uh, in, in their brains. Not only that, um, there are a huge number of uh, uh, genes that might code for smell that we're not sure about what they do. Right. So, and we know that 60% of these, these dead genes, if you like, still do still are active, they transcribe what we call messenger, messenger RNA. Um, and uh, thirdly, and this is the big one, processing capacity for smell in the brain is bigger than any other animal. And the reason- Wow. It's the biggest of all the senses? No, it's the processing um, centers and areas of the brain and the-, yeah. the volume and the mass of the processing, the activity that goes on is far greater in a human brain than in a cat and a dog and a mouse. Got it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we've got massive brains. <laughs> so compared to them, we've got massive olfactory bulbs. Yeah. We've got genes that are standing around, look as though they're doing nothing, but they might be. But actually, the stuff, the processing that goes, the signals from the olfactory bulb into the brain, you've got 
enormous area of the brain dealing with that, far more than any mouse, cat or dog. So this idea that smell is of minor importance in humans, no, I don't buy it. Wow. Yeah, I read that um, dolphins don't have a sense of smell, but in fact, they have the olfactory genes at birth. They're just not expressed yes, I mean, I, I, you're not, not an expert on dolphin brain no, I'm, not an expert on the, <laughs> I'm not an expert on dolphins but uh their mechanism anyway will be will be mixed because they aren't continuously breathing air as we are okay got it dolphins breathe the surface debris which reminds me of a question my physiology professor asked our class uh, when I was doing my master's degree, which uh, if mammals like dolphins have to service to breathe, which is a conscious activity, okay, how do they sleep? <laughs> and the sleep? answer is <laughs> what one half of the brain at a time. Oh, that's that astonishing! Yeah, which tells me that smell, our smell, sense of smell, olfaction wouldn't be there in the first place if evolution hadn't deemed it to be important. Yes. Be important. Why is it massively important? Because it's essential to survival. Two big elements to survival. One is the acquisition of energy. We don't think about it too much in our modern life because food is plentiful. Mm. It's human. Uh, non, throughout the non-human animal kingdom, it's a constant fight and search for energy. What does smell do? Helps to find food. Primary survival. Without food, we die. Yeah. Secondly, it helps us to reproduce. And olfaction between individuals in terms of their reproductive capacities is, is enormously important. I mean, there's a lot of urban myths about pheromones, female pheromones and enticing, but actually there is olfactory communication between all people, men on men, women on women, however you want to define men and women, human to human, there's an enormous yeah. amount of olfactory communication. And that goes towards our social life and that goes towards our sexual life and that goes towards our survival. Without sex, we die. Right. Literally, yeah. Without olfaction, there'll be far less sex. <laughs> That's the truth of it. That's the truth That's of it? Truth. Okay. Yeah, that is the, that is the truth of it. But oh. not only has evolution generated this vital sensory function called smell. Smell shapes evolution. We can go into that later if you like, unless you want. No, no, tell it. Go for it. Yeah. No, tell us about it. Well, well humans evolved in Africa. If we go to Africa, especially East Africa, we're going home, everybody, don't care who you are. You're going home because that's where it all started. Yeah. But humans emigrated due to climate change out of Africa. Most of the time, Earth's been glacial, very, very cold. 85% of its history, it's been frozen, glacial. Only 15% interglacial. Well, when global warming started happening, which is essential for life on Earth, humans spread from Africa, first of all into Asia, and then into Europe. And then about 10,000 years ago, the climate really got warmer and we, we moved from being hunter-gatherers to being farmers. Right. 
and we domesticated animals. Yes. And because we domesticated animals and our food source became more secure, we prospered. And human society developed enormously and our health vastly improved through farming animals. Now, pigs in particular have been a staple diet across the world for thousands of years. And they, they form a compound called androstenone. Androstenone makes pork taste bad. Oh. Because it was in uncastrated animals. Now the European Union wants to uh, stop the castration of pigs for, um, for animals' rights or ethical reasons, but they're worried that that will make the, the pork taste bad because an uncastrated boar will produce smelly pork. So how can uh -huh. we the pig and ate it? Right? In our evolutionary journey, we became far pig farmers and this is enormously helpful to society. How can we do that if it smells bad? Because a mutation arose as we made that trek from Africa to Asia to Europe, which removed the sense of smell for androstenone. So therefore we ate pigs and prospered. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. You heard it here. I did not know what that. A great, what a great story. Yes, that's the fascinating and, you know, um, I, I mean, I could talk about diet and brain health. We won't because we're here to talk about but, but diet is enormously important to the evolution of the brain. And the brain evolved to the size that it did because we came out of the trees and we moved from scavenging to hunter-gathering. And the development of the brain was entirely dependent upon two things. Number one, eating meat or fish. Mm -hmm. Number two, cooking. Ah. Uh, uh, well, cooking was... How else did evolution help to develop our smell? One, we became bipedal. We stood on two legs. Right. We, we went from being a few feet off the ground to being six feet off the ground. What does that do? Put us our noses into the wind. That's right. Yeah. And what carries, what, what's carrying the wind? Smell. So bipedalism improved our survival because it generated a better sense of smell. People will tell you this, right? It's buried in arcane books <laughs> we need to bring those out we need to let everybody know <laughs> yeah but two million years ago not only did cooking help to develop the size of the brain but it also exposed us to the aromatics of animals and plants that we wouldn't have we wouldn't have had exposure to unless we'd have cooked them that's right because th think about the role of aromatics and flavor and all that that odor molecules contribute industry now yeah it's a yeah. whole industry what do people enjoy most in life good food good wine whatever food you choose to eat or whatever wine you choose to drink it's those sumptuous smells which actually generate our appetite uh, yes yes our appetite too literally right i mean the, the saliva is generated yeah but appetite dependent yeah. upon yeah. smell and one thing in particular, and men, many vegetarians or vegans don't appreciate this, but the scientific truth is that the smell of blood improves the appetite for all food, including plants. Wow. Now they've proven that because they've, 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 they've done the experiments and they've exposed people to um, plain water and plain water with the aromatics of blood in there that, that you can't, 
you can't detect it. You can't say, oh, I think there's blood in there. Uh. It's all you can't, right? But all those people who smell the water with the blood in, their appetites improved. That's way, way back evolutionary stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, what made humans the most successful mammals on the planet? On the planet? Fighting? Yeah. Had to fight to defend ourselves against other animals and against other humans. Yes. Fighting and hunting. And it's embedded in the brain. It's been there for 1.5 million years. And I'm sorry if it offends anybody, but it's there now and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you can't uncook what's being cooked. You can't untoast what's being toasted. Yeah, it's part of evolution, as you're saying, yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I did want to just touch on how our sense of smell is different to our other senses, because we are such visual creatures and such oral auditory creatures. And I just want yes. to put a, you know, put a plug in there for our sense of smell and, and just. Well, it's very primitive. Yes. I mean, that it comes from our earliest uh, evolution. Right. We don't mean that primitive means that it's uh, simple. Yeah. Or 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 uh, or, um, or inferior because of that. Or in, yes. Yeah, exactly. Or inferior. Y yes, um, exactly. You're right. Uh, so it's very primitive, which means it's very very old, and it's not spectral like oh. our senses. So we hear across a spectrum of notes, don't we, continuously? Yes. We see color across the color spectrum continuously. Because it's so primitive, um, our smell is not like that. It relies on a big number of sensors. With uh, each olfactory receptor detects more than one smell, and each odorant can be detected by more than one receptor. So it's particulate, if you like, not yes, not a spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are fifty million. Uh, uh, olfactory cells in the, in the epithelium. But in terms of genetic coding for those receptors, as I said earlier, is about 390. Yeah. Uh, each of those receptors can distinguish, identify and distinguish, well, identify or has a different signal for um, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of odorants. And those hundreds of thousands of odorants affect multiple of those individual receptors. So it's a bit like how many words are there in an English dictionary and how many letters in our alphabet? Well, we've only got 26 letters in the alphabet, but we can make up hundreds of thousands of words. That's I like that analogy. That's really good. And we're still learning so much about it, quite honestly. We don't know every, you know. I think that's right in, uh, in all respects. Um, uh, sensory physiology is uh, is one area but there'll also be uh, medical research going on into the different conditions of smell and then there will be how infection like covid infect, uh, affects uh, yeah. uh, sense of smell there's even a sense there's even a science 
called the psychophysics of smell. So when I first came across psychophysics, I thought, what's this? It's the physics and chemistry of psychology. And psychology includes our sensory abilities. So it's uh, how we identify different smells, how we differentiate between them, and how we make relations between them. That's the psychophysics of, uh, of smell. What's, what comprises a just noticeable difference between two smells? The JND is a big concept in psychophysics. Yeah. And the laws, this really freaked me out. There, there are scientific laws, the laws of physics, which can be applied to smell. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just astonishing to all our senses, in fact. Yeah. So hearing, for example, is logarithmic. Ah. All right. So two decibels isn't twice one decibel, it's 10 times. It's a yeah. bit like pH. A pH of seven is not, you know, right. one over a pH of six. It, it's, uh, it's 10 times more acid than seven. So these phys physical laws apply to smell. And it, it's a burgeoning field of research. You're, it's exciting. I find it exciting. It is. You, your listeners, if, if you're scientifically minded, you can you can pick up papers on this simply through Google. Should we talk about research a little bit as it relates to um, brain research? Because I would like you to tell me, like I just as a lay person, I just find that there are there's so many more studies. There's so much more research being done on the brain now than ever before. Would you agree? I would agree. And we, we didn't understand the brain until um, 1848 due to a railroad accident where Phineas Gage, who was an affable, personable, reliable and cheerful man, the foreman of a railroad construction in Vermont, was badly injured when an explosion blew a tamping rod through his left cheek, through his eye and out of his uh, skull. Uh, uh, front foot skull, uh, the fourth. Uh, and um, he survived, but um, only physically. Gage was no longer Gage. He turned him into a completely different person. Hmm. Whereas he'd been a nice guy, he now became an awful guy. He was irascible, profane. Uh, he swore and cursed at people. He had fits of temper and anger, threw things around. And his doctor, Martin Harlow, published a paper called The Passage of an Iron Bar Through the Head uh, in, the, in the proceedings of the Massachusetts Medical uh, Society. And in there, he put forward the outrageous statement that this change in uh, character, temperament and personality was due to a loss of brain tissue. People didn't believe that. We, we believe that there were the four Greek humours, which were... <laughs> within our body and which determined our character. And even Shakespeare wrote about this in Henry V, where each of the main characters represented one of the humors. So this suggestion by Martin, uh, Martin uh, Harlow revolutionized science and we were no longer sanguine or bilirous black bile, yellow bile, and blood, and so on. We, we, that wasn't it. It was what is going on inside our brain. Yeah. Since 1848, which is what, barely 200 years, there's been a phenomenal increase in what we know um, about the brain. Even smaller than 200 years is 20 years, which is only the amount of time we've been really researching brain health 
and what what is brain health what goes towards it and what can we do to preserve it and do you know why the reason for that the reason for that is the marvelous success of society in enabling people to live longer uh-huh. one of the greatest success stories in history we talked about evolution evolution is only responsible for increasing our lifespan uh, by about 10 years uh, and it took it, uh, you know, two million years or so to do that. Two million years of evolution improved our lifespan by 10 years. Wow. Wow. From 1750 to the present time, which is only 250 years, we've increased the lifespan by 40 years. Wow. That's crazy. That's astonishing. And how has it done it? Not by medicine. Everybody thinks, ah, it's by medicine. Medicine's one of the things, but not, not the primary cause we've reduced the risk of death, Ah. secular improvements. We've made society fairer. So more people have got good living conditions, good clothes, warm homes, cool homes, better food and better access to medical care and they've been educated. Now that might be a knockover for your listeners, but those are the factors which made us live longer. Each one of those has contributed to living longer. You take public health, for example, putting chlorine into drinking water. Yeah. Well, chlorine is not a medicine. They're not medicating us. Right. They got the bugs in the water. Iodine is a medicine because that's used for thyroid conditions. Chlorine isn't a medicine. It's just to clean up the water. Cleaning up the water has put decades on human lives. Now, because everyone's getting older, we're now living to 70, 80, 90, 100. One quarter of the population of England alive now is going to live to the age of 100. That's crazy. Now, because of that, we're seeing diseases that we never saw before because people didn't live long enough for these diseases to get a grip. One of them is dementia. Oh, yeah. yeah. So one in three people age 90 and above has got dementia, and it's the leading cause of death, including COVID. Wow. What about how COVID's killing people? It ain't killing them as quick as dementia. Yeah. Now, maybe there was a, a, a spike, maybe 2021, where it may have done, but uh, dementia is, is one of the three leading, the other heart disease at the moment, I suppose, it's heart disease, dementia, and COVID. Yeah, yeah. But so people have been preoccupied with with the onset of dementia and it's had enormous social impact. Every diagnosis of dementia is also the diagnosis of a carer. Yes, it's true. It affects everybody around you. Yeah. 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 If you get dementia early in life, you can get it as early as 35 or 40. Yeah, there is the early onset dementia. Right. What's that going to do to your economic life? And as a society, the cost of dementia is enormous. That's right. And 40% of it can be prevented. Now, that wasn't known until two years ago. So it's very recent. Yeah. Yeah. 40% of all diagnoses of dementia can be prevented. So there's been this vast interest or increase in interest about brain health because it's affecting 
society. Yes. But the great news is for all your listeners is that we can do an enormous amount ourselves to maintain our brain health right for our latest years. Can I just take one step back and give you the three big findings in this 20 years that have revolutionized how we look at brain health. 2012, there was a study done by scientists led by the University of Edinburgh. And that found out that the change in our thinking skills across our life is only 25% due to DNA and 75% due to what we do to our lifestyle and our environments. That's the first big one. So it's not cast in stone and it's not written that you are going to get dementia or not because only 25% of that is down to DNA. They proved it in the numbers. Okay. The second one is there was this view that at age 25, we had developed a set number of brain cells. It was like the gasoline in in our cars, in the gas tank. And as we went through the journey of life, the gas tank emptied. And by the time you got to 90, you were running on empty. Untrue. <laughs> Completely untrue. And that's been believed for decades. Uh-huh. Fact of it is, uh, Discovery 2019, University of Madrid, we make new cells of the brain every decade of our lives, right up to when we're 90 plus. Wow. Every decade of our life, the brain rejuvenates itself. And every we, decade? Well, throughout every decade. Okay. One in 10 year events. Right, right, right. It's continuously, but it doesn't stop in our 50s. It doesn't stop in our 60s. It doesn't stop in our 70s. It's right the way through into our, into our 90s. They didn't look at anybody over 90, late 90s. So they didn't look at people aged 100, but pound to a pinch i'll bet you their brain the brain that's the right cracking on <laughs> rejuvenating itself if they'd have looked in and people hundred and the third discovery is it's never too late i love that to improve your brain health never too late now there's a long story about how we know that it's due to the berlin wall coming down really yeah, it's due to the Berlin Wall coming down. Do tell. German ancestry. <laughs> so you might be interested in this story. But when the, when, before the wall came down, the age of death in the East was much earlier than the age of death in the West. Okay. And the wall came down and they looked at it. And over the next five years, it got to the same as the uh, West. Yeah. West. Now, why? Because the German government in their largesse said, we're all Germans. We're all having the same pension. And there was a huge amount of unemployment and poor wages in, uh, in the East. So they all suddenly, granny and granddad, right, they got this huge cash injection every month, courtesy of the, of the German government. So everybody in the East started looking after granny because they needed that money. And it didn't matter whether she was 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, it didn't matter, that extra amount of care to keep them alive, improve their longevity and their metabolism and their physiology. Wow. So it's never too late. 
So there you have it. It's never too late. Words to live by. Wasn't it fascinating to hear about the evolution of our brain, especially that story about androstenone and uncastrated pigs? You know what's interesting about that story is that the idea of smell training started with androstenone. It derived from a 1980s uh, research study that was conducted by a Monell researcher named Charles Wasaki, who himself was anosmic to androstenone. So they say about 50% of people can't smell that chemical. Well, he was able to train his nose to recognize the odor after repeatedly being exposed to it. So that was the beginning of smell training. Just a little insight there. At any rate, I hope you got a good sense of the history of the brain, including the research that's gone into better understanding how things function, and then just how recently, maybe in the last 20 years, the scientific community has just started focusing more on brain health. So I'll just leave you with some key points here in part one, which will set us up nicely for the next episode in part two. So first of all, Know that lifestyle matters and has a huge influence on brain health. And also recognize that the brain rejuvenates itself every single decade, well into our 90s and maybe beyond. And most importantly, it's never too late to improve your brain health. What great news. I'll leave it right there for now, and I'll see you next time with part two. Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.